morning. Sunday night, we go through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and we'll be studying chapters 40. Uh, we got a little ways into chapter 40 last Sunday night, so uh, partway from chapter 40 through chapter 43, you can read that uh, this afternoon ahead of time and get all of your questions in your mind, and then we'll see if we can head through it and answer those questions. But we want to pull a passage out of that section this morning in Isaiah chapter 41, verse 21. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and you get their attention, they'll put one in your hand, and it's marked right to the passage today so for your ease. And then if you don't own a Bible, uh, well, you do now. God wants you to have a Bible and to know the Bible, so that, gifts a, that Bible's a gift from the Lord to you. Very important passage that we look at today, important to be uh, part of the foundation of every single Christian's life. Uh, chapter 41, verse 21. The Lord speaks and he says, Present your case. Bring forth your strong reasons, says the God of Jacob. Let them bring forth and show us what will happen. Let them show the former things, what they were, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them, or declare to us things to come, show the things that are to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God's. Yes, do good or do evil, that we may be dismayed and see it together, uh, indeed, you are nothing, and your work is nothing, and he who chooses you is an abomination. I have raised up one from the north, and he shall come from the rising of the sun, that is the east, he shall call on my name, and he shall come against princes as though mortar, and as the potter treads clay, who has declared from the beginning what, uh, that we may know and former times that we may say he is righteous. Surely there is no one who shows. Surely there is no one who declares. Surely there is no one who hears your words. The first time I said to Zion, look, they are, there they are, and I will give to Jerusalem one who brings good tidings. For I looked, and there was no man. I looked among them, but there was no counselor, who, when I asked of them, could answer a word. Indeed, speaking of uh, the idols and those who were following, he said, Indeed, they are all worthless. Their works are nothing. Their molded image, images are wind and confusion. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for these verses. Thank you for your thoughts and your intents behind them, the things that you want to build into our lives and into our hearts and into our minds and into our spirit and our relationship with you. And we ask, Lord, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, take this great truth that is found in these verses and that you would build it not only into our lives and into our relationship with you, into our ministries, but that you would build them, this truth right into the very foundation of our Christian life. We ask you for that, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. During the time of Isaiah, idolatry was running rampant among 
the children of Israel who lived in the southern kingdom of Judah and in Jerusalem. And they had in large part abandoned in terms of at least their heart, outward religion was going on, but in terms of who and what had their hearts, they had abandoned essentially the worship of God, though they were attending religious services, and they had exchanged the worship of, uh, of God, the adoration, the uh, worshiping of him, the obedience to him, that had all moved from the Lord, the God of the Bible. And they had now begun to worship these idols made of stone and metal and wood and out of clay. And they were worshiping the gods that these idols uh, supposedly uh, represented. In the light of all of this, in what is really an amazing demonstration of God's patience and his love for them, God called upon the children of Israel to bring out all of their idols. And it's kind of what we picture in our mind is a courtroom. Let's say we're in a, a very large superior courtroom that is say, as big as this room or as big as the property. And God calls all of the children of Israel to bring all of their idols, all of their false gods, out of hiding. They were hiding, but they weren't really hiding because you can't hide anything from God. So he said, let's bring them all out into the open and let's put these gods to a test. And so God here now... uh, communicates and he brings forth a God test, a test for anything that a man or a woman gives themselves to or chooses to worship uh, and, and make, you know, the God of their life. And so he says, bring them all out in the open. We're going to have a, a God showdown in which the children of Israel would present their case and the words of the passage, their strong reasons for following all of these idols instead of uh, following the Lord. In other words, God is saying that no person should ever follow a God blindly. We should have good reasons for following the God that we follow, and we should have strong reasons that we can then communicate to others for why we follow the God that we follow. A person's faith should be a reasonable faith. The, uh, the, a Christian's faith is a reasonable faith. That's why when Paul would go from city to city to city in the book of Acts, He would go into the synagogues or he would preach out on the street or wherever he might be. And we're told repeatedly that he reasoned with them from the scriptures. There's a reason for being a Christian. There's a reason for putting our faith in Christ to become a Christian. And so there ought to be, uh, faith should be a reasonable faith. Now before we get into the test itself, I think it's important to realize that this test applies to everyone in this room, and indeed everyone in the entire world today, whether a person considers themselves to be a religious person or a secular person, or somebody considers themselves to be a religious person or to be an out-and-out atheist, the passage still applies to each of us. Because the Bible declares that every single person in this world, however we would label ourselves, Every single person in this world is a worshiper, and we are a worshiper of some God. The Bible teaches that, practically speaking, there is no such thing as an atheist in this world. 
So often in our culture, we hear a great deal about the atheist who declares that he or she does not believe in God, and as a result, because of the current climate of our culture, uh, they are thought of uh, highly esteemed for their boldness to stand against God, for their scorn of God, for being independent thinkers, to break away from you know the mind-numbing uh, limitations of religion and to launch out on their own. And so atheism in many quarters and in most quarters today in the culture is received as kind of a badge of honor. Scorn is placed upon everyone but upon the atheist. But it is important to realize that as much as the atheist looks at God and the God of the Bible most specifically, uh, they uh, heap their scorn upon him most frequently in our culture, but they look and they, as they will say, I don't believe in the God of the Bible. The Bible is a book that's filled with myths, and the God of the Bible is a myth himself. And so this is a kind of thing that if your ears are open and you're in contact with any number of people at all, this is something that you get exposed to as a Christian. Well, that atheist, and whether they're rude or they're not rude, or they're bold or they're timid, but every atheist ought to know that God considers an atheist to be a myth, that practically speaking, they simply do not exist in terms of how he views mankind and and how he sees uh, our, our hearts. There are no practical atheists. They do not exist. Everyone is a worshiper of someone or something. Well, if we're all worshipers, then how in the world does a person identify the God that we worship and that we serve? Whether we worship that God or serve them knowingly or unknowingly, how do I know that what my God is that I supposedly worship? We identify the God that we worship by identifying the master passion in our life, by identifying that person, place, or thing that has captured my heart, my mind, my soul, and my strength. What is it that excites me most about life? What is it that fills my thoughts first thing in the morning when I wake up or fills my thoughts at the last moment before I go to sleep? What gets me out of bed in the morning? What do I think about in life more than anything else? Where do I invest my discretionary or my free time? Where does my money go? You've heard the saying, um, follow the money. And the idea is that if you, you follow the money in order to get to the bottom of something, and it's certainly true here, where our money goes in life is very much an indicator of what is our master passion in life. And when I answer these questions, I will have a good idea as to what my God is or what my master passion is. And a person's master passion can be money, it can be sports, it can be power, it can be sex, it can be travel, it can be education, it can be entertainment, it can be nature or creation, it can be uh, myself, and on and on and on we could go. Now, the Bible, interestingly enough, takes all of this even a step further because the Bible not only teaches that every person is a worshiper, but it further teaches that each and every one of us are becoming like the God or the idol that we worship. 
And we know this practically from our own lives, whether before we were Christians or after we became Christians or our observations of other people. But all of us know it to be true. We all worship something in life. We all have a master passion in our life, and we become like that God that we worship. For example, the man who worships money only becomes more greedy and more addicted to money. The man who worships power becomes only more and more power-hungry as time goes on. The man who worships sex only becomes more and more lust-filled as a result. The person uh, who worships himself only becomes more and more selfish as a result. We become more and more like the God that we worship. It's undeniable practically on any level you want to look in life. And so if we become like the God that we worship, and we do, then only the Lord... The God of the Bible and his son Jesus can be safely worshipped in this world because there's no other life, no other someone or something who is more glorious, more beautiful, more uh, full and rich in terms of being conformed into their image. And the knowledge that we become like the God we worship is one of the most exciting truths in all of the Bible for the Christian. Because we experience on a daily basis the Holy Spirit works in our lives to conform our heart, our mind, our soul, our strength, every portion of our lives into the image of Christ. And there's nothing more exciting than to know that I used to be this kind of a person even a week ago, even 48 hours ago. But God has worked in my life in such a way just in the last two days that he's transformed this area of my life even more into the image of Christ. And this is going on all across the board related to our lives. He is making us, the Holy Spirit is, in conforming us into the image of Christ. As Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he said, But we all... With unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we're being transformed into the same image, the image of God, from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Every Christian knows something of this, being conformed in the image of Christ. Now let's turn and notice this test that God uh, proposed in verses 22 and 23. It's a twofold God test that uh, God gives to these idols, and then he puts the same test to himself, by the way. First, he called in verse 22 upon the idols to bring forth and show us what will happen. In other words, he called on them to declare the future to us, declare some event that's going to occur in the future to us ahead of time. In other words, God is saying that any God worth worshiping, worth trusting my life and my eternity to, ought to be able to predict the future, tell me the future, with 100% accuracy. And if any God that cannot do that is then not worthy of being worshipped. And so, declare to us, show us what will happen. Second part of the test, God called on, upon the idols there in verse 22 to show the former things, 
what they were, that we may consider them. In other words, they should have an answer for the questions that we have in life concerning the past. Questions in life like, how did the heavens and the earth come into existence? How did all of this around us come uh, to be? How in the world did we get here? Where did men come from? Where did mankind come from? How did we get here? Why are we here? What is the meaning and the purpose for which we've been created? Why are we the way that we are? And that's a good question to think about in life. We just accept the fact that mankind is the way that he is. But why are we the way that we are? Imperfect in sinners. Why aren't we, when you walk around the world every day and planet Earth, why aren't half of the people perfect and the other half not? Why isn't that the ratio? Why is everybody imperfect? Why is everybody a sinner? Is there an explanation for that? Why isn't everyone imperfect except for one person that's perfect? Why is everybody a sinner and who can answer from the past for why we are in the current condition that we're in? Why do people die? These are the kind of questions that a God ought to be able to answer. Tell us the things from the past that can help us make sense of the present. And all of these questions concerning the former things... God readily answers in the Bible. And I would contend that there is nothing that so satisfies in all of the world these questions than just the very first three chapters of the book. The first three chapters of the book of Genesis that describe the creation of the world and man, man's fall, and then the beginning of God's redemption of mankind, the description of the Savior that he would send into the world to undo the mess that the sin that Adam and Eve had introduced into human history. God answers all of these questions in just three chapters, and he elaborates on that and so much more in the rest of his book. Now, why is all of this important? That someone, some God, whatever this thing we call God that we worship, that they have a grasp upon the former things and are able to communicate those things to us. Here's why it's important. Because there are so many gods, so to speak, so many philosophical belief systems in the world that we live in that speak very, very boldly, very loudly, very authoritatively on how we ought to live as people today. And so they're kind of the experts. They're the kind of the bosses. That's how they come across and they tell us, this is the way to live and this is the way not to live. And these uh, voices and these kind of things are going on around us all of the time. But God says that if they have nothing to say about the former things, how we got here, why we are here, uh, why we are the way that we are, and so forth, if they can't answer man's questions concerning the former things, then how in the world can they be trusted to be correct concerning how we are to live now? It's one thing to boast about being an expert on how we ought to live now, but if I'm not an expert on the past and I can test you on what you have to say about the past in order to then determine whether you know what you're talking about concerning the present, then I can't trust you. 
So a person who can speak authoritatively about the present, how we should live today, what are the meaning of life, what are the priorities of life, then they gain our attention. They earn our ear by also being able to tell us the former things. Additionally, you have all kinds of religious and secular voices endeavoring to speak to us authoritatively uh, concerning life after death. No No shortage of people saying, here's what happens when you die, here's what happens after you die, and all kinds of books are written about it, all kinds of... Uh, you know, uh, classes are on this, so much teaching on this kind of thing, and people speak authoritatively about death and what happens after death. But why would I believe anyone and their philosophy or their idea about death and what happens after death if they cannot tell me what is the origin of life and what is the origin of death. If you can speak to me in a way that I can understand and is reasonable about why life exists and where it came from and why death exists, then you've gained me as a part of the audience for giving serious thought to what you have to say about death and what happens after. But without that, why would I give your words or your theories any kind of authority at all. And that kind of skepticism is very healthy. God is nurturing a very healthy skepticism in people about the God that they're worshiping and the things that they're making, the idols in their life. And that kind of skepticism is healthy because God is telling us that if they cannot, what we make the master passion of our life, they cannot show us the former things. They're not worthy of our worship or our trust. And if they're not able to tell us things that are are going to come to pass before they come to pass, then they're not worthy of the God title either. Now, God does something wonderful in the passage. So evidently, God gives these idols that have been brought to him a sea of idols with all of their owners all around him, so to speak. That's the imagery that's in our mind. God gave these idols a chance to step up and speak authoritatively and uh, verifiably about uh, the past and concerning the future, but evidently they respond with silence. And so they fail the test. And so in verse 23, God lowers the standard way down for these idols and some sanctified scorn. And he says, all right, we won't, we'll drop the test. So you can't tell us the former things. You can't tell us the things that are going to come to pass before they come to pass. He said, Let's, I'll, give you, I'll give you a remedial God test here on this. He, he, said, he asked them just to do anything, uh, say anything, uh, as an indication that they possess any kind of intelligence or any kind of life. Just grab a basketball and dunk it. Do something. Uh, sing my way or New York, New York. Grab a mic, get a microphone for this idol right here. And he, and he left it to their own decision making, their own whatever they want to come up with. As long as they would say something and do something, he left it to them and everyone could watch them accomplish it. But the idols just stood there and, of course, they didn't uh, do anything. Still nothing happening. And then the Lord stepped in in verses 25 and 26 and he passed his own test. It wouldn't be fair for him to put these idols to a test and then not pass the test himself. And in verses 25 and 26, God prophesied, 
that he would raise up a great king who would come from the north and from the east and to conquer all of the existing powers of the Middle East. A king that he will then, uh, he reveals to the nation of Israel at this point, but then he will even attach the, the name of this great king who would arise, and he gives that king his name in chapter 45, verse 1, where the Lord said, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, To Cyrus, this is the name of the king that he's going to raise up, whose right hand I have held to subdue nations before him and to loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the crooked path straight, and I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars, uh, cut the bars of iron. And so uh, Cyrus, he prophesies, is going to become the great dominant king of the Middle East, uh, in the future, and that he will conquer all of that land, uh, and that he will do so uh, because God will assist him in doing that. The prophecy is an interesting one right here in uh, verses 25 and 26 because this prophecy here is made 150 years before Cyrus was even born. So 150 years before this king is even born, God not only named the man who would ultimately overthrow the Babylonian empire, but he names the man who's going to ultimately overthrow the Babylonian empire before Babylon becomes an empire. The prophecies are made here in Isaiah chapter 41 at a time when Assyria is the world-ruling empire. Babylon is a state or a province within the Assyrian Empire. There is no indication in human history at this time, though it is a significant state, that it has the power or will ever overthrow the Assyrian Empire. And yet in this prophecy, God in his prophecies here, he declares that Babylon will ultimately overthrow Assyrian Empire, but then he goes further to declare that he's going to raise up a king by the name of Cyrus who will ultimately overthrow the Babylonians. And Cyrus, we know historically, was the leader of an empire known as the Medo-Persian Empire. And all of this, of course, is a part of the any history book on the Middle East records the fulfillment of all of these uh, prophecies. God prophesied this concerning Cyrus and his coming into uh, human history and ultimately becoming the king and the head of the Medo-Persian Empire 170 years in advance. Amazing. God passed his own test. Now imagine having God tell us this morning what will be happening in the world. What will be the great dominant world power and the very name of the man or woman that will lead that world power 170 years from now in the year 2185? That'd be something, wouldn't it? And yet we'd go, wow, and then to know that it would come to pass. That's exactly what he's doing on the pages of scriptures here. If you knew what was going to be happening in the world and 2185, I mean, you, there might be some things you do uh, related to the stock market. 
Uh, you'd have to go long on everything. I mean, you couldn't go short by it, at all. But there are all kinds of things that, you know, how, how it would impact, what an amazing thing it would be to know something, history in advance, 170 years in advance. You ask yourself, why in the world would God bother to prophesy concerning King Cyrus? And the reason he prophesied concerning King Cyrus is that the greatest thing that King Cyrus would ever do, ultimately, he will dominate that part of the world. He will conquer that part of the world in a way that would have made the Assyrian Empire and the Babylonian Empire, um, you know, smack their lips in hunger. He just came and took everything over, expanded the borders beyond anything they could have ever dreamed of. But that was not Cyrus's greatest accomplishment. God doesn't work in the world based upon, okay, who got the most land or who had the most toys wins and all of these other things, whether it's on the level of a world-ruling emperor or somebody who lives in our neighborhood. The single greatest thing that Cyrus ever did and why he's mentioned in the book is that he's the one that gave the decree that allowed the Jews to leave their Babylonian captivity and go to Jerusalem as God had promised that he would uh, arrange for them. The Bible is full of this kind of thing. We just look at one prophecy here related to Cyrus, but the Bible is full of this kind of prophecy where God speaks of things in advance And then they come to pass. In fact, those that study these kind of things estimate, and it's certainly accurate, that fully a third of the Bible constitutes prophecies that uh, that were prophecies from God at the time in which they were given. So it isn't God that we couldn't turn to the Bible and, okay, God's got like two or three of the obscure little prophecies where there's something about this Cyrus guy, and then there's a little thing over here and a little thing over here. A third of the Bible was prophetic at the time in which it was written. He's given us a mass portion of his word by which to then look at what he has said about the future, see if it came to pass, with 100% accuracy and then draw our conclusions concerning him in contrast to all of the other things that clamor for our worship in this world and then to decide, am I going to worship the God of the Bible or or am I going to worship one of these other things? You look at the Bible, for instance, the prophecy concerning the reestablishment and the rebirth of the nation of Israel. We're just used since 1948 that Israel is in the land and in the news every day. There were generations and generations and generations and generations in which people looked and God said, I'm going to restore them to the land. They're going to become a nation again. It looked like it would never happen again. And yet in 1948, in the lifetime of many in this room, Israel became a nation again. When you pick up uh, a newspaper, you go online to read the news or you watch television and watch the news, the world that you are watching geopolitically, you're talking about ISIS, talking about Syria, talking about Iran, talking about Iraq, talking about Saudi Arabia, talking about Russia. All of these names are in the news every single day. And yet what God has declared in his word prophetically 
would constitute the geopolitical condition of the world at the time that Jesus returns to rapture the church is the world that you wake up to every single morning. It is a marvel to be alive and to be able to process life in the news in the light of God's Word. It makes us love Him more, worship Him more, be in awe of Him more. Prophecy after prophecy after prophecy filled and fulfilled. But the most famous and important prophecies in the Bible have to do, of course, with the coming of the Messiah, the coming of Jesus. And in the Old Testament, beginning right after the fall of Adam and Eve in that ancient garden, God began to give prophecies concerning a Savior that he would send into the world who would come in and provide us with a salvation from all of the damaging results of the fall of Adam and Eve, providing us supremely with the forgiveness of our sins and with that forgiveness the ability to engage in the greatest thing that we've been created for, and that is in a relationship with God. And from Genesis chapter 3, he begins to give prophecies concerning this Messiah that he would send into the world so that when that Messiah... Messiah came into human history, we would recognize him for who he is. God had declared that this Savior would be born into the world and that he would be born of a virgin. God further declared through the prophet Micah that when the Messiah came into the world, he'd be born in the city of Bethlehem, just as Jesus was. God declared further that when the Messiah came into the world, he would be divine. That is, God in human flesh, just as Jesus claimed to be and, as, and he was. Further, God declared that when Messiah came into the world, he'd be a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He would come from the bloodline of the Jews. And he would be born into the world not only of Jewish blood, but that specifically he would become through one particular tribe of the 12 tribes, he would come into the world of the bloodline of Judah, exactly as Jesus did. God declared that when the Messiah came into the world, he'd be a descendant of the bloodline of King David, the greatest king in the history of the Jews. And so Jesus was. God prophesied that Messiah would be rejected and he'd die at the hands of the very ones that he came to save. And so Jesus was, that at his death he would be betrayed by a close friend, as Judas did to Jesus that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Not 29 pieces of silver, not 31 pieces of silver, but 30 pieces of silver, just as Jesus was. That he would be falsely accused and silent before his accusers. That the Messiah would be beaten and spat upon. We're used to the biblical account. Of course Jesus was crucified. Of course he was beaten before he was crucified. Of course he was covered with the spit of men in, in their blasphemies and their attempts to degrade him on his way to the cross. But for the Jewish mind, as they would think about the prophecies of the Old Testament, the reverence with which they held the Messiah in their mind to think of the fact that the Messiah would ever be beaten, that anyone would lay a hand on him, that anyone would spit on him. It was unthinkable because the Jewish religious leaders of the day, they only emphasized the study of the scriptures concerning the Messiah, the prophecies that spoke of him coming as a conquering king, which he will do in his second coming, and they neglected the scriptures that spoke 
spoke of his suffering when he would come as a suffering savior as he did in his first coming. God prophesied that his death would involve the piercing of his hands and of his feet, that soldiers would gamble while he was on the cross for his clothing, that he would be crucified with transgressors, with thieves, that his side would ultimately be pierced, even as Jesus' was, in order to confirm his death. And the Old Testament scriptures then declared that the Messiah, though he would die, he would not remain in that condition long enough for his body to corrupt, but that he would then rise again from the dead. Psalm 16, and you, David said to God, will not leave my soul in Sheol. And then he said of the Messiah, nor will you allow your Holy One, the Messiah, to see corruption. He will die, but he will not remain dead long enough for his body to begin to corrupt. And on and on and on we could go, speaking of these prophecies, this prophetic portrait that God has given us of the Messiah, of the Savior that he would send into the world because Jesus fulfilled over 300 of those prophecies in his first coming, and he will fulfill the rest of him, them at his second coming. It is very important to understand that God doesn't give these prophecies and then fulfill them in order to show off or in order to perform the equivalent of a magic trick. You know, look what I can do and nobody else uh, can do. Fulfilled prophecy is given to mankind, and more than that, and more personal than that. Fulfilled prophecy is given to you personally as one of God's creation. It is given to you with a, a personally to provide you with a very strong evidence for the divine inspiration of the Bible and for its reliability. I read all these things and I come into contact with all kinds of stuff and people saying you do the same thing as I mentioned earlier in the sermon. This is all myths. It's all nonsense. God is a myth. These poor people that have to believe in God and all. And, and, and the whole thing is dismissed. And part of how I respond to it, in my own mind, I respond biblically to what they're doing. There are answers to the questions that they're asking or the objections that they have. But I think to myself so often, what about the fulfilled prophecies? What about the fulfilled prophecies? What about a God who can speak concerning the future, not once or twice, but hundreds and thousands of times? It constitutes a third of his book. You can test him for his word. You can do it historically because the, so many of the prophecies have been fulfilled. What do you do with that? And what do you do with a God who has given you individually, personally, that kind of an evidence in terms of whether you put your faith in him or you don't. The reliability and the reliability of the Bible uh, concerning the most important decision that a person will make in life. Here is this book that it, the fulfilled scripture testifies to the reliability of it, the divine inspiration of it, and that reliability is most important concerning the most important decision we'll make in life, and that is what will we do with Jesus and the salvation and the forgiveness of sins that is found in him alone. The Apostle Peter 
You know, we think we call the Apostle Peter, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle John. They weren't always apostles. They're actually pretty regular guys who loved a phenomenal God. And they're in heaven now. The Apostle Peter wrote in his second letter concerning his faith in Jesus as his Savior and as his Lord. And he said, We did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus. This wasn't a myth. This wasn't a fable. This wasn't something we made up. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For we received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to Jesus from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him, that is with Jesus on the holy mountain. He's talking about the Mount of Transfiguration where Peter, James, and John, during the earthly ministry of Jesus, he took them as a part of his inner circle up onto the Mount of Transfiguration. And it's called the Mount of Transfiguration because Jesus was transfigured into his eternal glory in that place, in that that very mount. And the three of them saw it. And then Peter goes on as he writes in his letter, and he said, and so we have the more sure word, of prophecy. And here you have Peter, an eyewitness to the life of Jesus, an eyewitness to the glory of Jesus. He had listened to all of his teaching for three and a half years. He had witnessed all of the miracles. He had been with him in every situation. He had witnessed his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And he declared that his faith in Jesus as his Savior, as his Lord, were not based supremely upon those things. Peter does not say what I would have expected him to say. Here's what I would have expected Peter to say. Listen, you guys. I saw him in his eternal glory with my own eyes on the Mount of Transfiguration. With my own ears... I heard God the Father declare concerning him, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And that is why I've put my faith in Christ. And that is why my faith in Jesus is unshakable. That is why I'm willing to live for him and I'm willing to die for him. And Peter would ultimately die a martyr's death for him. But he didn't do that. Peter said, Instead, he declared that his faith in Jesus was based upon something even more solid and more sure and more foolproof than what he saw and what he heard. You say, what in the world could be a more sure foundation for our faith than seeing and hearing? And Peter gives it to us, the more sure word of prophecy. The fact that God gave prophecies concerning Jesus, describing him as his Messiah before he came into the world and that Jesus has, is, and is the perfect fulfillment of those prophecies. That is the surest foundation that a person can have for their faith in Christ. That is his faith in Jesus, Peter was saying, was based upon Jesus' fulfillment of those Old Testament prophecies concerning him as the Messiah.
Why would God want our faith to be based upon something other than our emotions or our hearing, our senses, or our sight? Why would he provide a foundation for our faith in Christ that is actually independent of us and immovable and unshakable based upon the surest thing in the world, the word of God? Because sometimes you can find yourself in a trial or in deep waters as a Christian where that trial or that spiritual warfare or that difficulty is so great, you don't trust your mind. You can't trust your mind. You can't trust what you think. You can't trust your decisions. And you can't trust what you feel. You can't trust your emotions. How many have been in a place like that? And in that point in time where such a trial comes upon a Christian, upon a child of God, and there they are in that place where they say, I cannot trust my mind, I cannot trust my emotions, I cannot trust my senses or my eyes or my ears, I can't trust these things. And when a person is in that place, when they need and, and all of that is proving to be untrustworthy, then they can look and say, my faith in Christ is not based upon those things, but based upon the very word of God. Because you can find yourself in a trial where you need that confidence concerning God and Jesus as your Savior. And if I'm, my faith in him is based upon seeing and hearing upon my own senses, and those fail me, then they fail me at the world's worst time. They fail me at a time where I need that foundation the most. And God says, that's not trustworthy as a foundation. I'll give you a sure foundation based upon my word. And so he has. But I can't tell you how many times in the course of my walking with God since 1980, and being a pastor since 1985, I have stopped in the middle of times where I say, I can't trust anything else that's going on in me or around me. My faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins and my relationship with God the Father is based upon these fulfilled prophecies Nobody could tell us this ahead of time and somebody fulfill it by random chance. And God wants our faith to be based upon something that sure, the word of God. And this is supposed to have a powerful effect upon every single one of us as Christians and everyone that's not a Christian just yet, that God never calls a person to a blind faith when he calls you to put your faith in Jesus as your Savior for the forgiveness of your sins, he is asking you to do the only reasonable thing a person would do in the light of the prophetic scriptures concerning the Messiah and then the life that Jesus lived in his 33 and a half years of his first coming. Everybody worships some kind of God in life. 
And the question is never if we do, but the question is who is that thing and what is that thing? And in this passage here this morning that we've studied, the Lord provides us with a test that we should put our God to as a means of determining whether that God is worthy of our worship or not. Can it tell us the former things? Can it reveal the future to us with 100% accuracy? And And only the God of the Bible passes that test for the simple reason that only the God of the Bible is capable of it and worthy of our worship. Over and over again, God brings this up in these chapters in Isaiah. This is the first place that he brings it up. But he'll bring this up over and over again. Let them declare the former things. Let them declare the things that will come to pass before they come to pass. God brings it up over and over again as a witness to the reliability, the prophetic scriptures, a witness to the reliability of his word and a witness to making him our Lord and our God. And so what God has said here, not me, what I've said, I've tried to bring some things out related to the passage. It's God who has spoken this, not just to the children of Israel 2,700 years ago, but to you this morning in this room. You must do something with that. You have to do something with this God. You have to do something with this God who's not afraid to say unflinchingly, unfailingly, openly, the way that nobody else does in the world. This is how you got here. This is why you are the way that you are. This is the way the world is the way that it is. And then gives you this prophetic evidence, this prophetic foundation for your faith. You have to do something with that. And God intends that every person would do something with it, having heard it. And having heard it, each of us will do something with it. We will either cast it away and say, I don't want anything to do with it. I like the gods I serve. Or a person will do the only reasonable thing that you can do. In the light of what God has done to reach down so close to us, to make himself known to us, and that he is worthy of our trust in a way that we can understand. And that is to put our faith and our trust in his son and begin the relationship with him that we have been created for. Everything else is irrational and insane from the vantage point of heaven and the throne of God. God loves you. Like nobody loves you, God loves you. Did your mom love you? I hope she did. But if you had the most loving mom in the world, she is like the moon to the sun compared to how much God loves you. You came out of her womb. He created you. You are his creation. He loves you. He's created you. You've been created for relationship with him. And he understands about life and the fallenness of this world. 
He understands how many voices are clamoring for your attention, how many voices are speaking authoritatively about life, about death, about what happens after death. And he knows that you need a way to sift among all of those voices as an honest seeker of the truth and find some way to differentiate between the God who is true and all of the posers. And God gives you this prophetic element of his word to allow you to safely and surely sift between the true and the living God and everything else that just has a big mouth but can't back it up. And the reason that that's important is not only for the life that we live now, but we are going to, each and every one of us, live forever and ever and ever and ever and ever on the other side of this life. And we will either have that forever and ever in a place called heaven or in a place of judgment called hell. The stakes riding upon this decision are impossible for a human being to communicate. And so God says, I don't want you to be fooled. Here is the evidence that I will give you, evidence that will then cause you to be pointed uniquely and fully to me. If you have never, ever put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and as a result, begun a relationship with God that you've been created for, there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after this service, and they'd love to answer your questions and pray with you to meet your creator and begin a relationship with him. And it's for free. And it's there just for the asking. Do it today. Don't wait another day. Don't wait another week. Do it today because today's the only day you have. It's the only day you have control of. We don't know that we'll have another day. That's why the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Let's stand together and we'll pray. We're humbled by your word, Lord. And in this whole world that we live in, a Babylon of voices and theories and ideas and boasters and scorners and teachers and all of these things, so much to sift through to be able to come into contact with the truth. And thank you, Lord, that you have provided by telling us the former things and then telling us the things that will come to pass before they come to pass to create this infinite divide between you and every other voice in life so that we would not be confused about where to place our worship and our trust for this life and the life to come. Thank you, Lord, for giving the test. And then thank you for uniquely passing that test for our sake. 
And we pray, Lord, for each person that stands before you right now that is not yet trusted in Christ. We pray that the weight of what you did 2,700 years ago for them to hear and to have impact them today in their decision, that the fullness of that weight and the implications of what you've done, Lord, would just land upon them and that you would then give them revelation by your Holy Spirit that they are home, that this is the truth, and you are the God that they've been looking for. We pray for that work of your Holy Spirit in their lives and bringing them to salvation today. Those of us who know you and love you already, Lord, we thank you for the more sure word of prophecy and how it has carried us through seasons where nothing else could have done it. No emotional experience with you, nothing we could have seen, nothing we could have heard. Thank you, Lord, for anticipating every trial and deep water we would find ourselves in and putting a foundation at the bottom of that trial that would then hold in the midst of it, Lord, and protect our precious faith that we are so thankful to have placed in you. And we give you praise and thanks for the more sure word of prophecy this morning from the bottom of our hearts. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to 